Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Alec Ross. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Industries of the Future, and also the latest bestseller, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. During the Obama administration, he served as Senior Advisor for Innovation to the Secretary of State. He is currently a Distinguished Visiting Professor at the University of Bologna's Business School, He was a distinguished senior fellow at John Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He began his career as a sixth grade teacher in Baltimore. He has also appeared on a host of shows, including MSNBC's Morning Joe, CNN Fareed Zakaria, CNBC's Squawk Box, and many others. And most importantly, now, he is here with us on The Deep Dive. So welcome to The Deep Dive, Alec. How are you? It's great to be here. Yeah, no, I, I will put this right up there with Fareed Zakaria, Morning Joe, and the rest of them. But we're going to get a lot deeper on this, right? Absolutely, because I'm, I'm not going to force you into a five to 10 minute segment where there's no opportunity to, to actually explore these topics in a, in a meaningful way. Obviously, we have a lot more time and the show is called A Deep Dive. So I would be totally missing the point if I didn't really take an opportunity to get into these topics. And, you know, having just recently finished the book, there's quite a lot to cover. You know, the the raging 2020s feels like a very appropriate term, um, particularly as we are still in the the throes of of COVID. And obviously that mirrors the roaring 20s as, as people like to characterize that age coming off of any number of things, obviously World War One and and Spanish flu and so on and so forth. So, you know, starting with really the title of the book, like the raging 2020s, like what were you really trying to get across with choosing that title and that frame for this particular book? First of all, let me thank you for having me on. I'm thrilled to be a part of a of a deep conversation, something that goes beyond sound bites. So thank you for establishing a platform for doing that. Uh, in terms of the title, obviously the raging 2020s does harken back to the roaring 20s. Uh, and in the raging 2020s, it has a purposeful dual connotation. So the first is probably the most obvious. Rage connoted with, tied with anger. You know, think about protests on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th after the 2020 presidential election. Think about the rage in the streets from different protest movements. Think about the rage that so many people feel as we try to transition out of COVID, a transition that seems to be going on for, you know, going on a year now and is almost endless. But it also has another connotation. This is the, if you ask my 19-year-old son, what raging means. Is that a negative word or is it a positive word? He thinks it's great. Raging is like a great party at midnight. And so my point here is that the decade has started in a really rough way, but whether it finishes raging in anger or raging like a great party at midnight is entirely up to us. It sort of, you know, asks the question, will the future look more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek? and sort of lays out choices that will help determine whether it's one or the other. It's interesting that you chose to frame the idea of of rage in that way, because that is obviously, I think, a term and a word that's gotten quite a bit of texture lately, beyond just the capital, but just in the the zeitgeist. And it reminds me of a a talk that I did recently, pre-recorded, but it's actually going to be airing next week talking about lies that we tell ourselves. That was the, the frame of, of the particular talk. And Interesting. Yeah, I, I hope it will be. Um, <laughs> like I hope it'll be well-received. But um, one of the lies that I, that I highlighted is this sense of we, quote-unquote, are all in this together. 
And I, I highlighted that because I was like, well, we aren't really all in, all in this together, right? Yeah, very... let, me, let me tell you, we are so <laughs> not all in this together. Absolutely. Well, my goodness. No, 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 no. And rage is, is a word that can have some of the same connotation in the sense that do you think that all rage, and I'm not talking about the party rage, but the angry, more base rage, are all rages equal? Or should we view some rages differently than others? No, I think they're very different. I mean, look, the rage of somebody whose children are not thriving because of the situation of their being in and out of school because of COVID, the rage of families struggling economically is very different than the rage of somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask at the garden party, right? And this pandemic is unusual in that its effect on people has been wildly varied based on wealth. You know, if you think about the Spanish flu, and if you think about other past pandemics, you know, the very nature of a virus is it does not discriminate based on on wealth, um, but it discriminates based on things like underlying health conditions, age, and things like this. But this, interestingly, has proven to be a pandemic that has had a number of economic effects, where the, where the richest people globally, this has actually been an accelerant to their wealth. And for working class folks, this has been one of the most difficult years and a half in memory. I think everybody feels the rage, but I think the legitimacy of the rage or the degree of what's reasonable of the rage varies very widely. And, you know, I, I do see it with two different eyes. I mean, my, my kids go to public schools in Baltimore. My wife's a teacher in inner city Baltimore. And the difficulty that, you know, we see in their classrooms with kids trying to readjust to the world with, you know, teachers raging because, you know, they're getting sick because of the lack of vaccines in the school community or other such things is very different than the rage of the most privileged Americans. I guess I'll leave it at that. And, you know, I I would definitely tend to agree with you that this pandemic, it's expressed or or brought to light more of what we've already known. I've said and, and written that this has been, you know, cracks have become fissures at this point. And kind of playing off of that theme, you know, as, as we kind of explore this idea of rage a little bit longer, in, in your estimation, are you seeing or, or are we seeing the long tail of rage in the sense that has the pandemic and economic issues and displacement that we've experienced over the past decade, are they tied to longer rage-based movements that are now manifesting itself maybe a little bit more visibly than, than in the past? So what I think is that the rage, so it is summative. It is a sum of something. But I think it's become rage for the most part recently. So if you go back, I mean, in the raging 2020s, in this book of mine, I describe the shift in America from a model of stakeholder capitalism to a model of shareholder capitalism, meaning the capitalism in the United States used to mean that as the economy grew stronger, all boats rose with the tide. That then changed uh, predominantly in the late 1980s and 1990s. And that was the beginning of sort of the massively widening curve, the almost J curve. Uh, in terms of increased inequality. That then um, was further exacerbated by the economic crisis in 2008-2009. And it was after that economic crisis in 2008-2009 that I think we saw the beginning of the evidence of the rage, but it was still just a germ. And it was still, you know, pockets of America. That's not to say that economic disaffection was only hitting certain pockets of America. But if you're talking about rage, it was only then beginning. It was only then really beginning. I do think that the rage, we could see evidence of the rage predominantly in rural communities, beginning you know, in the second term of Obama, certainly with the election of Donald Trump. I see it when I go back to West Virginia because of the stagnation of sort of the old white working class there. And then sort of its corollary in urban and more diverse America, the rage is a byproduct of things like police misconduct, you know, 
long-standing racism, which you know culminated in movements including Black Lives Matter, and then the pandemic hit. All of these things, all of these situations, began to create the boil, and the pot, I believe, has really begun to boil over. In part because the because of first of all, just the death and destruction brought on by the pandemic, but secondly, because it did accelerate and exacerbate so many of the trends that were decades in the making, going back to the late 80s, 19, early 1990s with the shift from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. You know, I want to continue on that, on that trend of thought a little bit, because the, the shareholder versus stakeholder conversation is, is one that comes up quite often. And I think that language has become far more popular, not just in economic and financial worlds, but in social sciences, as we we're trying to unravel or, or rethink or reimagine or whatever metaphor we are using in a particular year, the way in which capitalism operates. And so I, I frame that to say, like, do you view those things as being significantly different from one another? Or is it a exercise in branding? in the sense that are, are, are any organizations really doing this differently? I think they are. I mean, look, we've got a long way to go. We have a very long way to go. But I do think that there are, is clear evidence that lots of organizations are modeling stakeholder capitalism, but they tend not to be American, to be honest with you. America tends to be a very chest-beating nation where we think we're the center of the world and we are the origin of all of the new and innovative practices and we have the best models of everything. And the, the God's honest tr truth is that that's not entirely true. And while there are terrific models of stakeholder capitalism in the United States, I, for example, do a, a profile, a case study on Patagonia in the book. More often than not, those are privately held. So Patagonia, for example, is a privately owned company. It's not it's not traded on the stock exchange. You can't go on the stock exchange and buy shares in Patagonia. So the real distinction in the United States is all the, the companies on the stock exchange tend to be modeling shareholder capitalism. That comparatively small number of companies that are practicing stakeholder capitalism tend to be privately held. By contrast, in Europe, for example, I split my time between the United States and Europe. It's much more common for companies to recognize the value of a broader set of stakeholders. So if you earn a dollar, the imperative is not to return as much of that dollar to shareholders, but rather the imperative is to say, how do we share this dollar equitably between shareholders, executives, employees, our surrounding community? That's more baked into the culture. And while it'd be easy to criticize European capitalist markets as, as not being as dynamic as American markets, I would argue that that is only partially true and that, in fact, a lot of the much healthier practices in capitalism you can find taking place in Europe right now. So there are examples of stakeholder capitalism you know, prevailing over shareholder capitalism, but the best examples, I would argue are hard to find in the United States. And, you know, Patagonia is a, it's a great example. I was at a conference last week and um, Sustainable Brands Conference was a great event. They invited me to speak and participate. And I was all, I'm always grateful to join that community. And, you know, Patagonia is always well represented there. And, you know, I find like Patagonia is a, is a great example, very common example. And, you know, are there enough organizations that, aren't privately held that can work in a way that truly changes the tone and tenor and direction of how we are moving from economic and social perspective you know because i try to tie those things together because a lot of in a lot of ways american capitalism late stage capitalism whatever you want to call it you know chosen whatever parlance is chosen operates very much like a religion it's a it's a cultural underpinning that ties to every way in which we think and see and do and act as a nation. And we have an outsized effect on the world, at least for now. So thinking through all that, like, how do we effectively counter that narrative that is fairly well cemented, even though Europe might be doing slightly better? 
So for me, the problem isn't the narrative. The problem is the reality. So the reason why we have a bad narrative is because we have a bad reality. So I think that there, there are a couple things that can be done. So first of all, a lot of the time, stakeholder capitalism or you know, a more responsible capitalism or a humanistic capitalism is nothing more than sort of PR and corporate social responsibility, meaning a little bit of grant giving while the core business operates the same. And part of what I write about in the Raging 2020s is how do we put meat on the bone? And just one example I'll give of the kind of things that we can do. There's this thing called GAP, Generally ex Accepted Accounting Principles, where there, you know, we have an entire industry dedicated to financial reporting. And there are a million different ways in which you can measure the health, the well-being, and performance of a company, you know, whether it's return on equity, where if it's internal rate of return, P&L, EBITDA, you know, there are so many different ways of slicing and dicing and evaluating a balance sheet. But there are very few ways to actually objectively and professionally evaluate a company's performance on things like sustainability goals, development goals. And so what I believe is we need an equivalent to GAP. We need something like the generally accepted accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, but brought to the world of development and sustainability. So if we're talking about a company's carbon footprint and what it's doing to offset its carbon footprint, we need industry-wide, we need market-wide measures with accountability and accreditation in the same way in which a company publishes its financials. So that's just one idea for what we can do to professionalize this. I mean, I do think, you know, if you look, for example, there's a group of, I write about in my book about this organization called the Business Roundtable. And the Business Roundtable is sort of the Washington lobbying organization for a lot of America's biggest businesses. So a lot of America's biggest businesses, it's the American Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. Those are sort of two 800-pound gorillas uh, in the jungle that is Washington, D.C. And the Business Roundtable adopted a measure that said, we're in favor of stakeholder capitalism over shareholder capitalism, meaning we believe in the virtue and value of rewarding and investing in all of the different stakeholders in our work, whether it is, you know, our customers, our employees, our surrounding community, or the environment. But it's hard to say, and this has now probably been two years, but it's hard to say what the outcome of that has been. It's hard to say the degree to which it has or has not had a material effect. And it's hard to say what's beyond the PR because we don't have anything like GAP. We don't have a set of measures that can be sort of third-party certified to say whether a company really is or is not responsible, offsetting its carbon or other such things. You know, and the business roundtable, it's, it's, I think, again, like Larry Fink's letter, you know, BlackRock has been trying to lead on this. And, you know, as, as the largest asset manager in, in the world, they clearly have a, you know, again, an, an outsized amount of PR and actual financial heft to, to change a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I think there, there has been some folks that have assessed what's happened since these proclamations have been made and the, underlying thought has been not that much. And I agree that finding a way to measure these things, whether using a standard like GAAP, and for listeners who haven't taken way too much accounting in their life, that's G-A-A-P rather than think, don't think like the store, add another A in there. But we have a lot of finance people who listen to the show. So I think they're well-versed in, in GAAP principles. But nonetheless, you know, one of the things I'd, I'd want to ask as a, as a reflection of that is the idea of if we're going to create something like this and, and anything can be created because all of this is created by us to an extent, do you think it's important to start to like factor in, like truly factor in cost, like the true cost of things in the sense that paper company doesn't really factor in the cost of the trees and the natural ecosystem, they're affecting the cost of timber, which is taking a living complex ecosystem like a forest and distilling it down to its most simple economic use, i.e. timber. 
right? So how do we put a price, if at all possible, on things like an ecosystem or like truly clean water and, and all the things that you're mentioning? Because I think without doing that, we're still not going to come up with a system that will answer, I think, the questions both you and I would want to answer. That there are, are a lot of young people by this, I mean, people in their 20s and 30s, who've been graduating from college and getting master's degrees and getting other advanced degrees over the last 20 years, who've been obsessed with exactly this and who have developed frameworks for measuring things like this. You know, in terms of water usage, it shouldn't just be how much water are you consuming, but to what degree are you fouling our waterways and what are the secondary and tertiary effects of that? It shouldn't just be, all right, well, your carbon your carbon output is not just whatever went into cutting down the trees, but also the addition, the additional depreciation that takes place by taking those trees out of circulation. This isn't, it's complicated, but it's not like it's undoable. And in fact, you know, there are just a ton of people who are hoping to make their careers developing these kinds of frameworks. Ultimately, we don't have a knowledge gap. We have a practices gap. So we have what we have is a deficit of companies that have really put themselves out there. Now, there are examples to the contrary, and I've written about some of them in the raging 2020s, but I would argue that we don't have a knowledge gap. We have a gap in terms of who've act, who've, who has actually taken it, undertaken it, and then we have a standards gap, a standardization gap. So Pepsi needs to be evaluated against Coke. You know, the gap needs to be evaluated against Patagonia. So there need to be sectoral standards and measures so that you are evaluating these things in a consistent way uh, and that there are sectoral standards rather than just standards and practices put in place by a single company. You know, how do we incentivize that the building of those new structures, particularly when our current reward system is so heavily skewed toward short-term effects. You know, it's a a term I throw around a lot, like the Wall Streetification of things. And full disclosure, many listeners already know this and are tired of me maybe mentioning this. I was a trader at Goldman Sachs, so my entire career was was spent in the short-term, you know, and and extreme short-term of sometimes minute-to-minute. But, you know, a, a trader, whether at an institutional firm or a hedge fund, is not as interested in the long-term wherewithal of a of a company. You know, they are very interested, however, in the short-term wherewithal of that country vis-a-vis their particular trade or, or position at that particular time. And there has been so much, there's so much fuel and liquidity on that side of the equation that I'm wondering how do we again counter that when the very structures and standards work against the thinking that happens on trading desk and within financial markets every given second that they're open and even when they're closed? No, look, you, you, <laughs> sa- you said the magical word, incentives. Yeah. You know, ultimately, we live in a market-based economy and human beings uh, we are we respond to our incentives for money, for power, for sex, for whatever it is. We are you know we are hardwired to orient our, ourselves toward whatever incentives are out there. And so ultimately, if you if you want to change your capitalism, you have to change the the incentives within your capitalism. Now, the whole idea be- behind multilateral diplomacy, you know, things like COP twenty six, you know, creating treaty frameworks uh, to have a more sustainable future, when you really boil down what the hoped for outcomes are there, it's really in creating a series of incentives. And when you rewire incentives in a market-based economy, it's disruptive. Now, that is an overused word, but it's also the most accurate word. I was in Emilia-Romagna last month, and it is a section of Italy that includes the headquarters of Maserati, Ferrari, Ducati, Lamborghini. And I was at the headquarters of Ferrari, and I was talking to John Elcon, who's the CEO of Ferrari's parent company. 
And he was talking about the regulations that had come down from Brussels, which basically said that by 2030, they can't be building fossil fuel burning combustion engines at Ferrari. And they were literally doing sound tests. Because if you think about a Ferrari, you know, one of the things that's most characteristic about Ferrari is the, you know, the sound of that big combustion engine, you know, burning fuel, right? And so they were literally testing sounds in an electronic environment to determine what they should do in a post-fossil fuel world. Now, to your question of incentives, what did Brussels do? Meaning, what did a European Union regulations do? What European Union regulations did is in a fairly dramatic way, they reoriented incentives. They said, you know, Ferrari, I'm sure that for the next 200 years, left to your own devices, you would keep building great big fossil fuel burning combustion engines, but we're going to change your incentives. Uh, You now have an incentive to innovate and to build some things that are entirely new and different, consistent with your brand, consistent with your hoped for customer experience, but within our regulatory regime. And so you can change incentives, like the European Union saying you can't build an engine that burns gas that burns, like, that's a pretty dramatic reorienting of incentives. But this is a case where the United States is really a laggard. So in China, as in the case of all autocratic companies, the great leader can wake up in the morning and completely change the incentives, right? And so if you look at the development patterns in China versus India, for example, over the last 30 years, Why was infrastructure modernized so much more dramatically in China than in India, despite roughly equivalent economic states, populations, skill bases, and other such things 30 years ago? Well, part of it is that India was hamstrung by the structures and strictures of its democracy and its inability to change incentives. Whereas the Chinese were able to completely reorient the incentives within its economy and built out its infrastructure massively. We can see, though, that this also works in democracies. If you look in Europe, for example, a lot of what they're doing around sustainability and in other areas is they've proven how across, you know, more than two dozen wildly diverse countries, you can rewire incentives. Now it comes, there's a loss of blood. There's a loss of economic well-being. It comes with costs. It comes with things like the the United Kingdom getting the heck out of the European Union. But you can reorient incentives. In the United States, it's more difficult, even though we only have one country, one government, theoretically, that can reorient incentives across 50 states. We're so divided right now that there isn't a governing consensus to dramatically change incentives in the United States. If we were to do a vote in the United States Senate right now that said, be it resolved, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, it would probably be a 50-50 vote. And in that context, it's very difficult to substantially reorient market incentives. This wasn't the question I was going to ask, but since it came up, I'm going to, before I forget, I'm going to ask this question. I was going to go to more of a we developing world kind of thing. So I'm going to put a pin in that one and kind of speak to the United States and and the idea of of consensus versus division and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I no secret to anyone listening to the show, I fall very much on the progressive side of the equation. Um, so that's my little bit of editorial. But having said that, I, I think knowing that polls aren't all of us accurate, a lot of the of the positions that you know I think fall into the progressive camp are actually quite popular in the United States, meaning more than fifty percent. But yet, as you did rightfully say, we are in a situation where there's incredible division split, really fifty fifty, right? Just because of how the Senate is made up in particular. So my question there is. There's a, a difference between those who are in charge and what people want, right? And the nature of our of our republic has made it that those who I would call, not putting any words in your mouth, obstructionists and destroyers of democracy actually represent far fewer 
than those on the other side, right? So that 50-50 is not really 50-50. So my question is, all of these systems coming from Milton Friedman's ladder all the way down has made this a situation that, in my mind, works against the will of, of what most people want. So, and again, I'm not saying it's 80%, but it's more than 50%. I think if you took a similar poll and said, hey, do you want like clean water? <laughs> you know, people are going to say yes to that, right? No one's going to really sign up for the dirty water, right? So my question in a, in a roundabout way is this model, shareholder model, this extractive model has gotten us to this point that it's like threatening the very democracy that we live in. So how do we get to the better part of that rage when the decade is over, when they're clearly folks devoted to burning this whole thing down? <laughs> yes. So I'll give, I could talk about that for an hour, but I'm going to give you three quick bullets, three things that I think respond to that. First of all, good old-fashioned leadership. Like there are cer certain things we cannot outsource to software. Nobody's going to write an algorithm that I'm from West Virginia. I'm from the coal-filled hills of West Virginia. And when I hear people in West Virginia consistently advocate for policies that are against their well-being, it blows me away. Like no people would benefit more from the contents of the stimulus bill, from the social welfare from the several trillion dollars worth of proposed investment spending from Joe Biden and the people of West Virginia. Yet its congressional de delegation will unanimously vote against it. Um, we need good old-fashioned leadership that will connect West Baltimore with West Virginia. We've, because, largely because of culture, cultural issues and because we get our information from wildly different places, people in rural America and America's heartland find themselves in a very different place than people in America's cities, which tend to be very underrepresented uh, in the Senate. The fact that West Virginia has two senators and the state of California has two senators, you know, sort of speaks to your point about representation. So given the fact that we aren't going to change the Constitution and we are not going to increase the number of United States senators in states like New York and California, what we need are people who can bridge that gap. And so Look, good old-fashioned leadership, and absent good old-fashioned leadership, sort of the great man theory of political change, then there has to be a political movement that unites West Baltimore and West Virginia. Um, unfortunately, the leaders of the progressive movement so far have overwhelmingly come from urban America um, and from coastal urban America and have been underrepresented in rural America. So that's thing one. Thing two is our information diet. When I'm home in West Virginia and I'm at a bar drinking a beer, you know, with a flannel shirt on, sitting next to some other guy, and we start talking, and I don't tell him that I worked for Barack Obama for six years, you know, I don't tell him I'm a university professor or anything like that. I just say, oh, yeah, I'm from Kanawha County, or something like that. And we start talking about politics. What's funny is they're actually very, very progressive on a number of issues without knowing they're progressive principally on economic issues. So they may be pro-gun, meaning they believe that absolutely everybody should be able to buy and own a gun. Government has no domain over it. But they also believe that, you know, people, that billionaires ought to pay substantially more, at, not just in total taxes, but as a percentage of, the, of taxes than working a middle-class people. And so you listen to them and it's uh, on economic issues, they sound like Bernie Sanders. But their information diet the radio that they listen to, the TV that they watch, and the podcast that they listen to makes them act against their self-interest. So the second thing is we've got to change the, the, in, the news and information diet that people get. And then the third thing is I think that the Democratic Party, um, and I hate bringing up you know the partisan stuff, but if I were being honest, I would say the Democratic Party has been much, much worse than the Republican Party at creating space for the next generation. Republicans are great at letting people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s into positions of leadership, whereas Democrats historically have been pretty hostile to allowing for new entrants. And as long as younger people 
feel like their participation and engagement in political processes is not going to change anything, then we're going to see their level of participation far lower than their right-wing counterparts. So those are three thoughts. No, I, I think those are all great thoughts. And one of them in particular brings me back to when we talked about the narrative versus the reality, right? That the reality says says one thing, and but the narrative is so overpowering that it it says another. So, you know, to kind of go into the media world, sometimes the narrative, the facts don't matter. You know, it's it's the belief in in what you think that that actually matters. So it makes me, you know, I'm I'm not from West Virginia, clearly I'm from Brooklyn, New York, but being who I am, I, I do know that at one point West Virginia was one of the more solid, solidly pro-labor and, you know, f- progressive states. You know, having a, a, a situation like Blood Mountain where U.S. Army goes in and, and shuts down a, a, a major labor movement is sort of unheard of. I think at the time it was the largest military in the United States movement after World War, after Civil War or something like that, right? So these things aren't happening by accident is what I'm saying. So, you know, when you mentioned that the progressive movement comes more from cities, I mean, well, Trump came from a city and people don't have too much problem with him. He's as New York on the asshole side of the New York fence as you can get. There's an example. He did a much better job of engaging West Virginians than AOC has, for example. And I like AOC. I like AOC a hell of a lot more than I like Donald Trump. That's um, easy. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> but if just objectively, like this is math, right? They hate her in West Virginia and they love Donald Trump. So, and Donald Trump has nothing in common with any of these people. Donald Trump, frankly, views them all contemptuously. Um, he thinks they're all stupid. I mean, as he, as he said, he said, I love the uneducated because he knows he can manipulate them. But he also was, has been very effective at engaging those communities, malignantly, but effective. And so what we need are people who prioritize and put the work into understanding what it will take to reshape the narrative in middle America. Because until we do that, until the electoral system changes, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. You know, Democrats, progressives are going to lose elections where they don't have people who can build a narrative that penetrates into into these communities. It's just math. Whether it's just or not, it's just math. And isn't that narrative, like when we like strip it all away, like isn't the ability for a Donald Trump to appeal to West Virginia and others, you know, not trying to stereotype you, landed in a lot of other spaces as compared to AOC, largely tied to his whiteness and the white grievance that exists within those communities with the nice steady dose of like gerrymandering in some places in the South, right? Where like a, a Mississippi has a, a, a fairly large black population. Not saying that every black person is going to be a Democrat, but many of them will be, right? So Mississippi can be a state that realistically should be in play, but it's not for a lot of historical and social and structural reasons that aren't tied to message is is what I'm saying. So how do we, A, do you agree with that to some extent? And um, B, that seems to tie into that rage, right? Like there's white rage and white grievance very distinct from other rage that allows a platform to people like Trump and others, right? Like he's not the only one, right? He didn't invent this stuff, clearly. So he's no Svengali in that perspective. Yeah, no. So first of all, it'd be more interesting if I disagreed with you, but I actually agree with you. <laughs> it's okay to agree. No, I agree, but agree yes, with nuance. Like yes, add some so, more to the to the spicy pie. So there's a there's a concept called palingenesis. All right, palingenesis in political economic theory is the evocation of a utopian past which may or may not have existed previously. And so, to your point of sort of the the aggrieved 
white guy in West Virginia. It's spot on. I mean, they are emasculated. When he says we're going to make America great again, what he is doing, it's classic palingenesis. He's bringing up an image from the 1950s or 1960s where the union wage worker sat at the head of the table. Um, dinner was on the table at 5.30, watched the newscast at 6, was bowling at 7. And even if he was working class in West Virginia, he felt at the top of the world. Uh, America's standing in the world, his standing in America was such that they were on top of the world. Then, and you know, this has all happened over the, this is all depreciated over the course of my lifetime. Then what happened? Well, what happened were a variety of different things. First of all, globalization. So suddenly, all those things that I describe in the raging 2020s, the work opportunities leave. Um, you know, we go from a dominantly industrial-based economy into a technology-rich, knowledge-based economy. And the guy sitting at the head of the table with that union wage job, suddenly his labor has either been automated, globalized, or otherwise made out of date. And what Trump did is, I'm sure he doesn't understand how or what, how it worked, but it was actually, I'm sure it was intuitive, but he tapped into the psychology when basically he told these folks, it's not your fault. Relieving people of responsibility and guilt in all therapy is a prerequisite to breakthrough. And so what he did is he said, you know what? It's not your fault. It's the fault of Mexicans. It's the fault of Muslims. It's the fault of Barack Obama. It's the fault of... And so what he did is he relieved all of the folks in West Virginia of sort of the culpability for their loss of standing in the world, for the loss of economic well-being, and created bad guys. You know, he put black hats on Mexicans and Muslims and Barack Obama and Democrats, and it's incredibly effective. And this is not a new tactic. I mean, when Mussolini said, we will make Rome great again, what he was speaking to was sort of the emasculation of an Italy that was weak and agricultural as the rest of Europe was growing strong and industrial. When Hitler, and, uh, and Mussolini was democratically elected, when Hitler was democratically elected, what did he appeal to? He appealed to the emasculation that came from Germany's loss in World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, and its economic devastation. So this is sort of textbook palingenesis that Trump engaged in. You know, I've, I've not heard that term, so that's a, a great term, but I get it, you know, in the sense that, you know, I spend a, a lot of time um, talking about nostalgia, and this sounds very much like it, it ties into that, and it's, I, I think it's where you see, again, as a manifestation of rage, these notions of you know, what was one of the original rage moments, right? The end of reconstruction, the idea that we can take back the so-called lost cause, right? It's not even the civil war, it's the war between the states, and then it becomes this this mythological lost cause, right? So are the places in the in the country that identify with these this idea of this nostalgia, this lost causism, right? I, I remember reading a piece, I'm going to say it was in the Atlantic, it might not have been, so sorry whoever wrote this and I'm getting it wrong, um, where they talked about like this idea of the myth, the mythology of the Confederacy is no longer even in Confederate states, right? It's in places like Oregon and Idaho and Iowa, you know, sorry to shit on all those states, but they're waving Confederate flags there, so fuck them. Right. And so my point to all that is, is are these areas primed for these kind of stories? And in a in a country that has built a narrative around its primacy, as that starts to shift, do they become more susceptible to this overlay of messaging in order to make sense of their place in the world? Yes. I mean, look, and it, it exists at this point in all 50 states in the United States. I mean, basically, wherever you have a certain demographic, which is, it is, I won't say it's white and male, but it's white and masculine, right? So it does interestingly envelop a lot of, of white women. Uh, you know, 53% of white women voted against Hillary Clinton. 
Um, and they didn't all vote against her because of this, but a lot of them did. You know, the reason why you would find this in the Oregons and the Idahos and the Western Maryland's and parts of Pennsylvania, parts of Michigan, like, like there, you you find this in all 50 states now. Parts you, of upstate New York. Parts <laughs> of upstate, you, you look, there's no place, there's no state in the United States right now where you won't find this to some degree. In substantial part, a byproduct of a lot of what I write about in the Raging 2020s, which is, first of all, this move from stakeholder, from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. Because in upstate New York, in Oregon, in West Virginia, in all of these places, there used to be good-sized employers that made multi-generational commitments to communities and its people. There was a social contract that worked. But with shareholder capitalism, for example, in West Virginia, the chemical companies like Union Carbide and DuPont went to tax-optimized locations on coasts, and they took the production of the, the chemicals to Mexico and India, um, where it could be done less expensively and without the environmental controls that exist in the United States. Um, so the hollowing out economically a lot of these communities substantially exacerbated it. And then you add to that again the, inform- the, the pollution that comes from right-wing radio, Fox News, and it's, it's a, actually a fairly remarkable news and information ecosystem that has penetrated into these communities, which creates alternative realities. I mean, if there's, I ran tech and media policy for Obama's first presidential campaign. And if there's one thing that I was wrong about back in 2010, 2008, when I was doing this, like in retrospect, what did you think then that you, that you now know you were totally wrong about? I was so caught up in, uh, well, I won't say I was so caught up in, Coming off of the success of tech and media policy in Obama's first presidential campaign, where we broke through with a hopeful, positive, fact-based campaign, I believed that propaganda wouldn't work on the internet because it's so easy to fact-check everything, right? You know, it's so easy to name and shame misinformation. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, It turned out the the internet absolutely was a great place uh, to manipulate the news and information environment especially coupled with radio and, you know, a broadcast and, and cable news uh, that, reinforced the, that reinforced what could spread online. So the communities have the economic circumstances, the social circumstances, the cultural circumstances, and now the news and information environments that lend to radicalization. And I do believe that of the 77 million people who voted for Donald Trump, I do believe that 20 million are radicalized. I think that there are, you know, when we use the word radicalization, we tend to talk in terms of the Taliban or such things. But I do believe that 20 million Americans have become radicalized in the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years. The number is probably higher. Um, <laughs> but I, I love I love the sunny optimism. I would probably put that number at like how many people voted for him 77 million i think i think 77 million it was 70 it was 70 some 70 some million voted for trump and when you talk about true radicalization i perhaps optimistically put it at about 20 million yeah i'd put it at that 77 million <laughs> <laughs> all righty then my number would have looked like a circle yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a perfect perfect I, circle i hope i'm right and i hope you're wrong but that Me may too. not that may not be the case <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting thinking about effective moments of, of propaganda because I've I've seen um, most recently the the battleground has been now school board meetings seem to be the place where everyone's um, venting their <laughs> their their frustration. So it seems like the geography is playing out in, in real time. But I, I want to use the the time we have left to get to. One other question before we get to the final two segments of the show, which is when you walk through a, that example of the industry and the shifts and and moving things around, you know, it brings me back to my earlier point about who is the we, right? And and how are these things distributed? Obviously, in your example, the we are these large multinational organizations and so on and so forth. And the the two areas of your book where I thought were the whole book was interesting, but in particular where you tied this together was where you had a, a lengthy chapter discussing taxes 
and then one discussing geography and which always makes me think about borders and and the reality or imaginary status of those but that we i want to tie that into taxes and geography because it seems like those are the places where a lot of these battlegrounds are happening in that in both models right now shareholder and stakeholder taxes are 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 being well hidden which is a tremendous loss to society i.e me and you pay more than we should and those who should pay more pay much less and geography in the sense that the dirty parts of of this work and of our environment happens in the southern hemisphere and the results of that come back to us through consumer models and then the the way the money flows is also a function of geography right people have boundaries money seems to have none so how do we think through those two forces of taxes and geography because those aren't often like front and center in like morning joe and msnbc unless it's taxes bad so this is an opportunity to have a, a smarter conversation about that <laughs> yeah I, I think the look i think the most important chapter i wrote was about taxes it can be spectacularly boring but i tried to make it interesting and it's incredibly important because understanding taxes and tax policy is a skeleton key for unlocking a lot of the hoped for changes that are out there. I mean, right now we live in a country where a single FedEx driver, one FedEx driver, pays more in federal taxes than Federal Express Corporation. The 17-year-old barista who made your cappuccino for you this morning at Starbucks pays more in federal taxes than Starbucks Corporation. That is a fundamentally unjust tax system. And the problem is that when the richest individuals and the richest corporations don't pay taxes, and when obviously lower income individuals are net consumers of government, government programs and government benefits, then what you ultimately have is the middle class paying for everybody and for everything. And going back to the theme of rage and the, the raging 2020s, the rage that make that we talked a little bit about the rage that I believe comes predominantly from the working class. You know, the Trumpkins have their supporters, obviously, among the wealthy, but I believe that they are principally manipulators. And I don't believe that they are really living the rage. They're just benefiting from it. The, we just spent, you know, a good half hour talking about the rage of the working class. The rage of the middle class, I think, oftentimes comes from the fact that people at the uppermost income levels live in a, in a capitalism where it's heads I win, tails you lose. The value of their goods, the value of their assets are always appreciating. The needs of low-income Americans are growing, and they're the ones that are paying. So on taxes, I think we need, in a world of global capital markets and global capital, unless we have international coordination on taxes, then we're all screwed. I mean, it, Federal Express is not breaking the law when it doesn't pay taxes. Starbucks is not breaking the law. No, none of these corporations are going to break the law. What they are going to do is optimize for their shareholder interests. This is something that an in, independent coffee store owner can't do. This creates a larger chasm between very large companies and small and medium-sized businesses. So going back again to the middle class and some of the source of rage for the middle class is middle-class Americans tend oftentimes to work in small and medium-sized businesses. Small and Life is getting more difficult at small and medium-sized businesses in part because of the competitive dynamics for them versus very big companies put them at an extraordinary disadvantage. So if the independent coffee shop is paying a higher percentage of its revenues and taxes than the Starbucks next door, it is at an economic disadvantage. Again, this is not calculus. This is middle school math. This is nothing more than addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. On the question of geography, you know, there is a reckoning taking place around the world right now. Uh, as we transition, I won't say out of COVID, but as we transition into 2022, we've had the opportunity to sort of reckon with our social contract. When I say our social contract, I'm talking about that which defines the relationship between state capital and labor, between 
governments, businesses, and citizens. And there's, there are different models in play right now. And what's interesting right now is if we think about the proverbial global south, they are determining right now what their social contracts will look like. And they're looking at China, they're looking at the United States, and they're lo- looking at Europe for instruction. And I fear that they are taking a lot of the wrong inspiration such that elites, the people who oftentimes control political movements and certainly the economics in the global south, are aligning themselves with models of growth and governance that maximize their economic and political benefits, but do so at the exclusion of, you know, the majority of their populations. So, you know, there are great models for both governance that you can draw from from China and capitalism that you can draw from from the United States that will strengthen the hand of a ruling class in a global South country that ultimately will contribute to the rage in that country because wealth and well-being is being created, but it's being created among a very small concentrated part of the population. Absolutely. They've, they spent too much time studying here. Um, those those elites here and in in various universities across um across Europe as well. Yeah, um, the UK the UK is the worst for it actually. The UK yeah. beware he you know beware the royal of a, a the developing world royal with a degree from a UK university. Yeah, Cambridge or Oxford is not really doing us any favors. Um and we need more Panama papers, we need more Pandora papers. They, and I think the the tax exposés and the way in which people hide their wealth it's it's a real huge loss for all of us you know whether we're in developing countries or not i like to say our the vulnerable we're all vulnerable if one of us are vulnerable then we're all vulnerable i want to get to the final two segments of the show which are off the dome and the drop so off the dome are just some rapid fire questions i have 3 of them um first thing off the top of your head is going to be the right answer. So you ready? Get it up. Let's go. All right. What is one of your most either regrettable or forgettable fashion choices? Oh my God. Regrettable or forgettable. The suits that I bought like 15 years, the three button suits that were way too big. <laughs> those are always painful to look back on, aren't they? Oh, and they, they finally had to go. Like those are... Yeah, hopefully being hopefully being worn by somebody who weighs twenty pounds more than me, and yeah, yeah. What what were we thinking about with fabric? We were just like massive fabric abusers. Yeah, that was bad, bad, bad. All right, yeah, that was a bad look. Um, We are making additions to Mount Rushmore, which we shouldn't do because it's on indigenous land, and we shouldn't add anything to Mount Rushmore. So I'm going to make that statement. But in hypothetical world. We're making an addition to Mount Rushmore. Who would be your addition? Wow. Is Franklin Roosevelt on Mount Rushmore? Teddy. Yeah, so I'd put Franklin there. Okay. I mean, thinking about, I mean, tying this to our conversation, we, at the same time in the early 1930s when Germany tilted toward Nazism and Italy turned toward fascism, uh, amidst the same, amidst similar economic conditions, the United States turned toward the New Deal. Um, and so I think that's an example of governance done right. So I'd, try, I'd turn to FDR. Okay, there you go. That's a good one. Um, and my final off the dome is if you can become an instant expert in anything, what would that be? Wow. Goodness gracious. An instant expert in anything. Anything at all. Wow. I would love to, I don't know if I have the right word for this. I would love to be one of those people who could like navigate the wilderness, like, you know, (laughs) expert, like back trail hiker expert. You know what I'm saying? I'm too tied to like Google maps and all that kind of stuff. Like I want to be, I want to, I want to be able to lose myself in the mountains for two or three days and live (laughs) and and live. Um, (laughs) but I lack the expertise and the wherewithal for it right now. One of those folks that you see in movies where they just pick up some dirt and just kind of taste it. And they're like, we need to go that way. Yeah. Right. (laughs) 
I could do, I could do well. I'm, I'm too, I'm well short of that right now, but I would love, I would love to have, even though I grew up in West Virginia, the truth is that I'm more of a city mouse than a country mouse at this mm-hmm. point in terms of my expertise, but my soul is still oftentimes in the hills. I just don't, I can't navigate it like I can city life. Yeah, I feel you. I com- I'm a, I'm a Brook born and bred Brooklyn kid, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So perfect. So I, I want to get to the drop, and the the drop are just, you know, these intellectual nuggets. It can be anything at all that you know we want to draw our listeners' attention to. Book, movie, film, article doesn't matter. It could be anything at all. You know. So I have a drop. Hopefully, you have a drop. I'll go first. Because I've been giving people the chance to either go first. And I think one person in my last 10 actually decided to go first. So I'm like, why do I keep doing this? I'll go first (laughs) and then I'll let you give your drop. Sound good? Yes. All right. So I actually have two this time around. And my first one is a show. And it's called Only Murders in the Building. And it's on Hulu. It's with Martin Short and Steve Martin. And it's... I didn't think I was going to like the show, but I actually ended up really enjoying it. It was a low stakes watch, but that's actually a very high compliment because sometimes you want to watch something that's well put together, not too serious, not too deep or dark. And this kind of really hit the notes. It was, it was pretty funny as well. I I'm a big Steve Martin fan. So one of my drops is only murders in the building. Then the other one I have two this time is a book. It's called Hip Hop at the End of the World, and it's a um, beautiful coffee table book put together um, by a guy named Ernie Panaccioli, and he, otherwise known as Brother Ernie, and he's a, been a longtime photographer and kind of keeper of, of hip hop in his nation stages. And I came across this book in a, in a bookstore in Williamsburg and subsequently went out and got it, and it has just these amazing like slice of life pictures of hip hop, which I grew up with and Queen Latifah and MC Lighter on the cover, two of my favorite MCs in the world. So definitely if you're looking for like a beautiful book and you're into hip hop and really the culture of hip hop, I would highly recommend that. So those are my two drops. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go in a different direction, a little bit of a different direction. Um, you know, I am one who normally what I've been consuming in terms of what I'm reading, like books, both fiction and nonfiction, is very contemporary. You know, it's stuff being written now. Like that is 95% of what I've been reading for a long time now. But I recognize the virtue and value of some of the older readings, uh, the, the older works, some of the classics. But I don't actually read them um, usually. But I did over the summer. And one in one book really moved me. It's The Leopard by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, Il Gatto Pardo. And it's one of those books that's on like every 100 best books ever written list. It's on every one, right? But no, but few people actually read it. And it really moved me because it made me think about it's a book about like 1850s Italy. Um, in a, in a certain sense, but it made me think about this moment that we're living in right now, because it's about transition. It's about transition from life to death. It's about the transmit transition from sort of the old aristocracies of old Europe to the new, to, it wasn't a democracy, but to the sort of new Europe where you weren't just taking instructions from a king or a pope. But the interesting, it was about transition. And I think we're in a fascinating moment of transition right now. So Lampedusa's novel, The Leopard, it's only like 150 pages, but it's beautiful and it's brilliant. Oh, awesome. That's a good one. I'm going to look, look that one up. So great drops all the way around. This has been awesome. You know, we could have gone on and on. You know, I've, I left a lot of questions on the table because we went in some other, <laughs> went in some other directions, but that's always the case. You know, Alec, I want to really thank you for, for being on the deep dive. I love the book. Again, it's called The Raging 2020s. It's a, a, a really great read. And I think it does a, a really good job and a very important job of not just summarizing where we are today, but really looking and going in some directions that 
folks who try to talk about this stuff typically don't hit on. So I think it'll be like really worthwhile addition to any of our listeners' libraries. So definitely check it out. And thanks for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.